am so honored to be here today. I had so much fun this morning with you at the coffee with Kayla conversation. It was so fun and already such a good word from Chrissy. So I'm just so honored to be in the room. I'm from California. A lot of the churches are still closed. So it's so special to me to be here and to get to worship with you and to be here live in person and see you face to face. It's such a treat. So thank you for having me. Before we dive in, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. I'm a former pastor's wife. My husband, Andrew, and I led in different capacities at Inland Hills Church in Chino, California, together for 10 years. And he served as the lead pastor for three years. Although we're not doing ministry anymore, I'm still doing ministry. It just looks a lot different than it used to. I'm also a mom raising three wild, beautiful, blue-eyed boys. My oldest son, Smith, is eight years old. My middle son, Jethro, we call him Jet, is seven years old, and he is such a Jet. <laughs> and my youngest son, Brave, who's growing into his name, is five years old. My heart is full, my life is super busy, and my house is really loud, wild, stinky, and fun. I'm calling the message I brought this morning, Rebuilding Beautiful. It's two words that have been an anthem for me in this season. It's what we have to do when life knocks us down. It's what I feel like I'm doing every single day. And most of the time, the rebuilding starts in a place of loss, disappointment, or pain. I have a question in three points I want to ask you today. And the question is this, how do we rebuild beautiful when everything beautiful is stripped away? I think we may be gain some wisdom on how to best answer that question from our friend Jesus. So I want to spend some time with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to pick up the story in Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. Jesus had just finished celebrating Passover, and he knew his time on earth was coming to an end. The verse says this. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. The word sorrowful and troubled hardly scratched the surface of how Jesus was actually feeling. It was so much more than that. In this moment, Jesus was so overcome with pain. He was so deeply grieved. He was so distressed that Luke twenty-two forty-four says his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The verse goes on. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Another translation says this, my heart is ready to break with grief. Has your heart ever been ready to break with grief? I know mine has. 
Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. And what's so important to understand here is that this is the only time throughout Scripture that we see Jesus taking this posture of prayer. He was so distressed. He was so overwhelmed. He got on the ground and put his face to the floor. And he says this, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The cup Jesus is referring to here is a metaphor used throughout scripture to represent pain and suffering. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. I love how honest the Bible is. Like, isn't that it's funny. He found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Basically, he's saying, hey, stay awake. He knows their hearts. He knows they love him, but he also knows his friends are about to stab him in the back. Yet he is full of grace because he knows they just don't understand. The verse goes on. Then he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Although he's begging God to take the pain and suffering away, in each prayer he acknowledges that it's not up to him. He knows he will accept the Father's purpose for his life, but he's also asking, hey God, is there any other way? Hey, God, does it have to go down like this? Hey, God, that cup you're about to hand me is sharp and it's painful and it's going to hurt a lot. Hey, God, can I have a different cup? I can relate so deeply to Jesus in this moment because I have asked God some of the same questions over and over again these last three years. Sometimes we're handed a cup that is painful and we will wrestle with picking it up. And Jesus clearly shows us in this text, in this vulnerable, raw moment in the garden, that it's okay to wrestle with God in our pain. Which leads me to my first point, which is this, to rebuild, we must wrestle with our circumstances. We wrestle all the time with circumstances that are beyond our control because we don't always get to choose our trials. We don't always get to choose how our life pans out. We don't always get to decide. Sometimes God will hand us something that is completely overwhelming, something that is sharp and painful, and we may beg for him to take it away. Maybe like me, you planned out your life, but it didn't pan out the way you thought it was going to. Maybe the promotion you thought was coming never came. Maybe there was relapse instead of remission. Maybe there was divorce instead of reconciliation. Maybe there is desire to start a family and you've been trying for years, but there's still no baby. Maybe you want to be married so badly and you've gone on date after date after date, but you're still single. 
Maybe you were healthy and then mental illness came out of nowhere and now you find yourself sitting in a place of depression and it's dark and it's terrifying and maybe you're wrestling with suicidal thoughts you never thought you would have. Maybe you had big plans for your life the last two years and then COVID hit and washed all those plans away. And maybe like me, you've been wrestling with God to take the cup away. Friends, for the last three years, I have been living a life of shattered dreams, waking up every single day to the same heartbreaking reality. I have told God countless times that he's picked the wrong girl and he's handed her the wrong cup. I want to take a few minutes and tell you a little bit about my Andrew and our story, and then I have two more points and we'll wrap it up. Andrew and I met at a little college called Vanguard University in Costa Mesa, California. We fell in love really fast, and we were kissing in the rain after a Coldplay concert by our third date. (laughs) A year later, he asked me to marry him, and a year after that, at 21 and 22 years old, we were so young, we were babies, we got married in December 2010. In 2011, Andrew's dad, who was the lead pastor of the church at the time, Andrew was raised in the church. He had grown up in the church. His parents had built a beautiful church. His dad was diagnosed with leukemia, not even a year into our marriage. And Andrew was on staff as the creative arts director at the time. But when his dad was diagnosed, he stepped up even more. We have pictures of Andrew and his dad sitting side by side in the hospital, running a church together from this tiny hospital room in L.A. Andrew began to plan message series, lead staff meetings, and speak frequently at only 23 years old. At a church that averaged about 4,000 people on a weekend and had a staff of about 35 people, it was a really big responsibility at a very young age. As his dad's health continued to decline, Andrew was handed the official baton of leadership and became the lead pastor of the church at only 26 years old. Sadly, just a few months later, his dad passed away. And Andrew's heart was for the church. He put aside his own grief to be there for the church and to care for the church, so he came back right away just two weeks later and preached an incredible series on heaven. He was invincible. He was amazing. It was like nothing could stop him from living out his calling. And then in the fall of 2017, Andrew got sick. Out of seemingly nowhere, he started experiencing very debilitating panic attacks. These panic attacks were happening three to four four times a week, mostly when he would try to fall asleep at night, and they were terrifying. If you've ever witnessed a panic attack or experienced a panic attack, then you know it is scary. The fear would take over his body and his eyes would glaze over, and I could tell he was in a panic attack just by the look in his eyes. At first, we thought it was a thyroid issue, because he had struggled with thyroid issues in the past. We thought maybe this is just a flare-up. So we were pursuing all different kinds of testing for his thyroid, and it was all coming back normal. And the panic attacks, instead of getting better, were continuing to get worse. I'll never forget 
Easter Sunday that year, minutes before he was supposed to be on stage to preach the first of seven Easter services, a security guard found him on the bathroom floor in the middle of a major panic attack. Somehow, by the grace of God and Andrew's strong will, he was able to get on stage and speak that winged, and I'll never forget, he's on stage speaking, and I'm in the green room crying. It was overwhelming. A few weeks later, he had another massive panic attack that landed him in the hospital, and it was then that we decided, okay, enough is enough. This guy's been running fast. He's been running hard. He's carried our church through so much. Maybe he just needs to rest. Maybe he just needs a break. And so we put him on an unexpected sabbatical. No end date. Take as much time as you need. Two weeks later, we were sitting in a psychiatrist's office, and Andrew was diagnosed with depression. And so we started this journey with depression And most days were very unpredictable. He would spend a lot of the time in the bedroom sleeping. And then when he did come out, I didn't know if he would be sad or if he would be angry or if he would be full of anxiety or if he would be present and want to do something fun that day. Every single day was different. He was also experiencing some really intense spiritual warfare that was only adding fuel to the flame. But despite all of that, Andrew was running to God. He spent a lot of time praying and listening to worship music and crying out to God. He was, and we were doing everything we knew to get him better. He was seeing a psychiatrist every other week. He was taking medication. We were seeing a therapist together for two hours every single week. He went and spent time in solitude. He went and spent time with mentors. You name it, we tried it. We were doing everything we knew to get him better. And by the end of July that year, the doctors actually thought he was getting better. They thought the next step for his depression would be to go back to work. They thought too much time away from work could make his depression worse. And Andrew was ready. He was passionate. He was driven. He hated that all of this was slowing him down. He was ready to be back at work. He was ready to share all that he had been learning. And so on August 1st, 2018, he hit the ground running and he gave two powerful messages on mental illness. Church was packed. He got a standing ovation. People were sitting on the floor. I mean, it was an amazing weekend. Two weekends in a row. It was amazing. He gave out the suicide hotline number. He quoted statistics from the NAMI website. He would have known where to go for help. And he was talking about things not a lot of pastors were talking about at the time. He was being brave. He was being courageous. And it was so well received. He was helping so many people. And then the following week, he had a really bad day at the office. He had told our staff and told our family that he was at about 65%, and he was hoping to ease back into ministry over time. It was such a bad day, and he had such a big meltdown that we knew maybe he wasn't ready to go back to work. Maybe he still needs some time to heal. Maybe we went back to work too early. So the following day, while we were making phone calls, making arrangements, taking care of everything so he wouldn't have to do anything, so he wouldn't have to worry, he attempted suicide. It was a complete blindside. He was rushed to the hospital. 
He was placed on life support, and for 24 hours, I laid on that little hospital bed with him, crying out to God and praying and begging God to wake him up and begging God for a miracle and telling God how much he could use the story for his glory. But I didn't get the answer I was hoping for this side of heaven. And on August 25th, 2018, Andrew took his last breath. And with that, I took my first in this life I never saw coming as a widow and single mom of three little boys ages two, four, and five years old when their dad died. Suicide. I still can't believe it. It was truly a blindside we never saw coming. Three years later, and it's still just as unbelievable. I wish this wasn't the life I got handed. I wish God wouldn't have allowed this to be filtered through his hands. Every single day, I'm still learning how to live here. I'm still learning how to pick up the cup. And just like Jesus in the garden, we see that it's okay to wrestle with picking up the cup because the pain and the sorrow is overwhelming. And I am so grateful we are loved by a God that has compassion and patience for our pain because he gets it, because he lived it. Before we jump back into the garden with Jesus, I think it's important to pause for a few minutes and talk about suicide and mental health, especially from a platform like this. Unfortunately, Christians sometimes have a bad reputation of saying the wrong thing to people who are struggling, which is why I just want to say this. Mental illness is not the result of an underlying sin issue. Mental illness doesn't disqualify anybody from ministry, and mental illness is not a choice. To be honest, there's so much we don't know about mental illness in general. I'll never forget Andrew's psychiatrist telling us we know a drop in the ocean of the brain, one single drop in a vast open sea. We are all still learning. And when it comes to suicide, it's complicated. I truly believe to my core that Andrew didn't want to die. He just wanted his pain to end. According to Andrew's psychiatrist, 90% of suicides are impulsive. It's an in-the-moment, overwhelming flood of pain, pain that many of us aren't capable of understanding unless we've lived it. As I've grieved the loss of my husband, I've learned to talk about suicide in a different way. When we say the words committed suicide or killed themselves, all it does is heap shame and blame onto the shoulders of the person who died. The word committed is the wrong word to attach to suicide because it's also a word we attach to phrases like committed a sin or committed a murder or committed a crime. It also ignores the fact that the suicide is often the result of an underlying physical illness. That's why the best phrase to use is died by suicide. These words clearly send the message that the death was caused by a mental condition, not a decision. This might seem small or insignificant, but it's not. Our words matter. 
Our words carry weight. Our words have consequences. Our words have power to speak life or evoke pain and shame over someone. When we pay attention to the words we use to describe mental health issues, the truth is we actually fling the door wide open for our loved ones to finally feel brave enough to reach out, to step out, to raise their hand and say, I need help. If we want to break the stigma, we have to choose our words wisely. We have to ask questions and have more empathy. Suicide is a serious problem. It's a public health crisis. Nearly a million people die by suicide every single year, and it's the second leading cause of death in people ages 10 to 34. Any talk of suicide must be taken seriously. If someone is brave enough to share their darkest thoughts with us, the best thing we can do is respond, not react. We can listen. We can ask questions. Questions like, do you have a suicide plan? How often do you think about it? What problem are you trying to solve through suicide? We can reach out for help. We can do everything in our power to get them the help they deserve. We can call the suicide hotline number. We can text the crisis text line. We can make sure everyone, someone goes with them to every single doctor's appointment. And we can keep showing up. We can be love in action. We can show up at their front door. We can keep calling until they answer the phone. We can invite them. We can include them. We can continue to reach out until they get better. And friends, I know this isn't easy. I know this is really hard. Loving someone who is struggling with their mental health might be the hardest thing you'll ever do. It's a long journey, and sometimes it's a lifelong journey to embrace and support those we love who are suffering. When I think about Jesus and how he would respond to mental illness, I see him sitting right beside us. He isn't trying to fill the silence with noise. He isn't quoting scripture or shaming us for our feelings. He's simply present, present with us in our pain and patient with us on the journey. This place is so broken, and it's okay to wrestle with our brokenness. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be human. Even Jesus was human, but Jesus also knew that he wouldn't be human forever. He had his eyes fixed on eternity. He had his hope anchored in God, and he was able to see that his pain would not be wasted. It didn't take long after Andrew died for me to see that God wouldn't waste my pain either. Right away, I began sharing our story on our family blog called God's Got This. It was a blog we had set up when Andrew's dad was diagnosed with leukemia as a way to communicate the leukemia journey with the church. And those words, God's Got This, have been the glue that has held our family together through both the loss of Andrew and his dad. The words God's got this remind me every single day that no matter what we're going through, we can rest in the fact that God is sovereign and he is in control and he is with us and he is holding us close right where we are. As I shared my story 
As as I shared my pain, our story spread like wildfire, and I began to receive messages, letters, and emails from people all around the world. And I wanted to share with you a few of the things they said, because I think it just shows how much power is in our stories, if we're willing to share them. I finally reached out and started to get help, and I owe that a lot to you and your family for walking through this with such transparency, resilience, and grace. For the first time in my entire life, I believe that I'm going to beat this, and I owe it to Pastor Andrew and you. I am so sorry you're walking through this, but I just wanted you to know that lives are being changed and people like me are choosing to live as a result. Another one. Your story is the reason I called my husband's therapist and told her how bad it really was. Thank you. Another one. While this won't change the pain and grief you feel, I wanted to tell you that God has been working through this. Your public grief has saved my life. I was contemplating suicide as I've battled a silent battle with anxiety and depression, and then I stumbled across the first blog post you wrote. Andrew's legacy lives on. I'm alive because of him. Now every dark night, I repeat to myself, God's got this. God is always enough. Thank you. When we allow ourselves to be vulnerable about our own pain, we give permission for others to be vulnerable too. Every story is important. Every story matters. Every story deserves to be shared. A few months after Andrew died, as I sat in the shrapnel of my broken life, my new friend Bob asked me a question, and I think it's a beautiful question to ask anybody who's sitting in a place of pain. The question was this. He said, Kayla, what are your dreams? Which leads me to my second point, which is to rebuild. We must dare to dream beyond the destruction. As Jesus wept in the garden, he was still able to see beyond the destruction. He was able to see beyond the pain because he knew the pain was temporary. He knew this place was not his home. I love how this passage from Hebrews 12, 1 through 4 in the message translation puts it. It says, keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again and again, item by item, that long litany of hostility he plowed through. That will shoot adrenaline into your souls. We can get through anything we go through in this life if we, like Jesus, keep our eyes locked on eternity. We can dare to dream beyond the destruction because we know this is just a glimpse. We can defiantly choose joy in the deep trenches of pain and learn to live within the tension of the two. Friends, I don't know what your hopes and dreams are, and maybe you don't even know. But this morning, I want to dare you to dream 
What are your dreams for your future? What are your hopes for your family? What is your vision for the next 5, 10, 15 years? I love what Chrissy shared earlier about getting an, an item. I love that your daughter has the Alabama Christmas tree. Like, that's so fun. Dreaming is at the heart of rebuilding. We have to dare to dream again. We have to dare to dream beyond the destruction. If you are still alive, God is not done with you yet. The last point I have for us today is this, to rebuild, we have to posture our hearts to receive his peace. Rebuilding Beginning again when life doesn't go the way we planned is a daring choice. Just because we choose to begin again doesn't signify an end because there is no end. There is no goodbye. There's only moving forward with our pain. Jesus never promised to take away our pain, but he did promise to give us peace. When he was prophesying his own death, he said to his disciples, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If we go back to the garden with Jesus, we see that although he is overcome with pain, he postures his heart and his body to receive God's peace. He gets down on his knees and says, may your will be done. And as he's being arrested, he doesn't try to put up a fight. Instead, he says to his friend, shall I not drink from the cup the Father has given me? That question is so powerful, isn't it? I believe it's a question we can all stop and ask ourselves when we're sitting in a place of pain. Shall I not drink from the cup the Father has given me? Friends, I have no idea what your cup looks like or how jagged its edges may be. I have no idea what it's like to live with the pain you are living with. But I do know that we don't have to do this life alone. And that supernatural peace is possible in the midst of our deepest pain. God wants to invade every area of our brokenness with his perfect peace, but we have to posture our hearts to receive it. Maybe posturing your heart looks like listening to worship music in the car in the morning, or maybe posturing your heart looks like going for a walk outside, or maybe posturing your heart looks like sitting at the kitchen counter in the wee hours of the morning before anyone else in the house is awake. Or maybe posturing your heart looks like Jesus in the garden. Maybe your pain is so overwhelming that it beckons you to your knees. It beckons you to the foot of the cross. But maybe today is the day that you declare that although you're broken, you aren't going to stay there. You're going to choose to rebuild again because God isn't done with you yet. So how do we rebuild beautiful when everything beautiful is stripped away? We dare, we wrestle with our circumstances, we dare to dream beyond the destruction, and we posture our hearts to receive his peace. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this moment. Thank you that we can gather here, that we can worship you, that we can encourage each other with our powerful stories. I mean, so many powerful stories in this room. 
God, thank you for your supernatural peace in the midst of our deepest pain. Help us to surrender. Help us to let go. Help us to live a life with open hands. Help us to move forward bravely with our pain and declare all the good that you have done. God, our eyes are fixed on you. We love you and we trust you and we believe that you've got this and you've got us right where we are. In your precious name we pray. We give it all to you. Amen.